Most all the Jewish leaders accepted the complete Old Testament. Let me give you another one before I answer it. At the time of his ministry, most all the Jewish leaders taught about and encouraged the Jews to look forward to a resurrection. Give you another one. Most all of the Jewish leaders believed in and preached about angels and how God used them to minister to his chosen people. Give you one more. Most all of the Jewish leaders believed and preached that crises happens primarily because of someone's personal sin. Let's take the first one. Did most all the Jewish leaders accept the complete Old Testament as inspired and authoritative? False. The Sadducees did not believe in the entire Old Testament. They accepted only the first five books, and they were the ones who were in charge of what area? The temple ministry, okay? And so they had, uh, they had a lot of the teaching in Jerusalem. The next one is false. <laughs> okay. Uh, the next one at the time that they taught about the resurrection, encourage it, the Sadducees did not believe in a resurrection. So they didn't even talk about it being your hope for the future. Most all the Jewish believers, uh, teachers preached about angels. True or false? That's false, okay? The Sadducees did not believe in spirit beings, angels, and they even questioned whether we, after we die, if we even have any kind of interaction, if we don't go into just some time of soul sleep forever and ever. Most all the Jewish leaders believed and preached crises happens primarily because of sin. That is true. Now think about when the, uh, they give the story, the Sadducees come to Jesus, and their story is about the resurrection and this lady in the, in this, uh, it has to do with a lady who has how many husbands? They all die and she keeps on getting married. She marries seven brothers, so six times, okay? Uh, there's been a death after the first marriage. Think about what that meant about this woman in their theology and their teaching. Don't you think somebody would say she's a dangerous woman to get married to? Okay, so the, that whole story has a lot of different nuances that when they pose it to Jesus, let's talk about that, okay? Let's set up our scene. Uh, the whole account happens in Matthew chapter 22. This is in that last week of Jesus' ministry. Remember Sunday he came marching into Jerusalem. Crowds were cheering. By the way, the crowds were cheering. They called him what titles? Okay, remember the Most High, Son of the Most High. Remember any other titles they gave him? Okay, what's that? Hosanna, Lord save us. Whose other son did they call him? Son of David. That's very, that's going to come into play here on uh, Tuesday when Jesus is having his debates with them. Keep that in mind. Monday, Jesus comes along and he cleanses the temple and then he possibly meets with the, Greek, uh, the Greeks who are there seeking some information. But Tuesday is his busy day. Tuesday is the day that he has a lot of different discussion, debates, teaching, and the Gospels record a lot of these different conversations that happen on Tuesday. And during that time on Tuesday, they all record how he's being attacked. Different groups come up and they challenge him. Why do you say this? Or what do you think about this? And they're bringing up some hot topics. Now in the last two discussions of the six different discussions, Jesus asked the questions of them, but he's trying to point out their lack of Bible knowledge, their lack of understanding the truth. What's interesting to take note of, according to Jewish uh, culture, Jewish practice, and what was described in the Old Testament, that in that period of day number 10 and day number 14, right before we 
we have Passover, those days of the month, that is when they're to be examining the lamb to see is this lamb, the priests are supposed to check it out, is this a, um, a okay lamb for the sacrifice? And so what's happening is this Tuesday falls in this time period where the priests were supposed to be doing examinations. So they are examining Jesus with, with an intent to prove that he is bad, but they're going to find out he's an innocent lamb, that he is without, without blemish, and so they will find no fault with him. In fact, after the discussions are completed, before they're even completed, before he gets into, into debate number five and number six, he has silenced all of his critics. None of them, it says, they dares not ask a question. Why? Because every time they asked a question, it kind of, the rock fell upon them, and they were crushed by his response. And so what happens is they ask these questions, starting with question one we talked about, by what authority, who gave you this authority to be here, to be preaching, to cleanse our temple, to stand up in the temple and do the preaching. And, and again, let's, let's give them the tip of the hat. It is their job to make sure that if somebody comes along, that that's somebody who claims to be a teacher, that he's teaching right. So the, in that regard, it's okay. But he's already declared his authority for, for weeks and months already. He's presented himself. They've heard the rumbling when, it's, when a, the voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. So there's been a lot of proof about it already. But Jesus then in this discussion after he they don't respond because he flips the tables on them and says I'll answer you if you tell me who gave John the Baptist the authority to do the preaching and every, the crowds think he's the prophet. So these leaders they're not, gonna, they're not going to respond by saying well you know, John was not a prophet because the crowds would get upset with them. And if they say John was a prophet from God well then they know Jesus is going to say we're preaching the the same thing. If he was a prophet, I'm a prophet. And so I fulfill that Deuteronomy 18 about the great prophet coming. So Jesus then afterwards, he shares parables. And in those parables, he's trying to show the corruption of the leaders. He's trying to show their fault. He's trying to show that, that the grace of God is extended to people that they wouldn't extend grace to. And he's basically going to conclude that they, people need to have the right robes, the right garments to get into the kingdom. Messages that he's been preaching, but he rehearses right in the temple by saying these three parables that we've already gone over, the parable of the two sons, the wicked tenants, and then the parable of the wedding feast. And so he gives that information. Then they go into, pay, uh, into number two. Some of them come up and they're going to challenge him. And number two has to do with paying bills, has to do with taxes, has to do with the Roman taxes. Now here's where we, we all are familiar with this, but let's just rehearse in our mind. Look down in chapter, I said 20, uh, yeah, 22, verse 15. Then went the Pharisees. Now watch what happens. Okay, look at verse 20, 15. The Pharisees took counsel how they might entangle him. It starts off giving us that information. But who then goes out and asks the question? Do you see in verse 16? The Pharisees do what? They send the Herodians out. That is really interesting. The Pharisees are manipulating the situation by getting the Herodians to go. It'll make a whole lot more sense if you understand a little bit of the background. So let's do a little bit. Let's, let's ask ourselves, what did the Herodians do? The Herodians are a political party. This isn't a religious party like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This is a group of, uh, uh, that would be the Green Party or something, you know, an, a smaller group that's there, you know, uh, whether it be the Constitutional Green Party, the, you know, the uh, Libertine Party. It's a smaller element, but in 
an important and impacting element in Jewish culture at that time. This party accepted Herod as being on the throne, being the Jewish king. That's, that's where most of the Jews had a problem. Herod's family is Edomian or Edomite. And so they're not historically generational ancestral Jews. They've kind of been adopted into Judaism. And because of politics, he became the king of the Jews and kind of said, well, I believe what you believe. But historically, he has got no Jewish blood. They have the blood of some of the, the Israelites' enemies in the past. And so they accept Herod. They are pro-Roman, which has a problem for most Jews. Okay? Most Jews are not pro-Roman. Some are more nationalistic. Some are more, okay, it's, it's you know, Soviet. Um, but the majority of Jews, they are not liking the Romans at all. You know that. And so the Herodians want everything just to remain the same. Now let's take the Pharisees who go to the Herodians and say, you go out and ask this question. The Pharisees, watch the contrast here. The Pharisees are a Jewish religious sect. Everything they do, they say we do according to the scriptures. This is motivated by God's word. They oppose Herod. They are anti-Roman in stance. They want Jewish independence. They are the more the nationalists. They hate Roman taxes. They want change. Now why do these two people who are on the opposite aisle politically... They would argue publicly and openly against each other. What is it that brings them together to work with each other? They both hate Jesus. They just absolutely hate Jesus Christ. So what you have in here is their major differences they're willing to put, put aside to combine forces to oppose Jesus Christ. In other words, what we have is this deep, deep hatred by both groups or this is showing us something that the Pharisees are really, really more powerful than, than what we think, that they can manipulate other groups there in Jerusalem. And that's, that's kind of weird because the Pharisees don't hold as much power in in Jerusalem as they hold power outside Jerusalem. Do you remember this? Do you remember the, the, the more powerful religious body? The Sadducees in Jerusalem. The Pharisees have more influence outside of Jerusalem. Let, let's see if we make the difference. Which political party in America is mostly city? The, the Democrats. Which one is mostly rural? In the, okay, there's a difference there. Though that doesn't mean everybody, okay, is, you know, everybody living in town or in urban areas are Democrats. That, we're not saying, but there's a greater influence there. The Sadducees had the bigger influence in Jerusalem, the Pharisees outside of Jerusalem. Pharisees are influencing an inner city group. And so they might be more powerful than we even give them credit for their sway of, of things that are happening. But they get the Herodians, say, go and ask Jesus. And the Herodians, who are pro-Roman, come and ask this question. Verse 16, Master, we know that you are true. Yeah, right. This is sincere, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. We know. While, while they're asking this, smiling at him, they got the dagger behind their back. You know, they're hiding it, so to speak. And we know that you are true, and you teach the way of God in truth. Neither care you for any man. What do they mean by neither care you for any man? Does that mean Jesus is, is they recognize that he's cruel and non-compassionate? Yes, no? He doesn't care about what? 
their opinions. He doesn't care what other people say. That he's going to speak his, what, what he believes is truth no matter who's around him. For you regard not the person of men. That's, he, he isn't being swayed by people that are the hoi polloi. He isn't being persuaded by money. He's going to speak what he believes by conviction. They're acknowledging that part. And so when they come to Jesus, they're going to ask this question that is a, a legitimate question that is, by the way, this is a debate. This isn't just an unusual question. This was debated by the Jewish populace. They would have discussions like this. They would have different sermons about this. Why? Because this was this was a divided opinion or, or a hot topic because some of the nationalists, some of the Pharisees were more nationalistic. We should stop paying taxes. Some of them were the fanatical group that were even being called, you know, borderline zealots. And so they're asking this question and their reasoning is no matter how Jesus answers this, he's in trouble. If he says, don't pay, okay, if he says this, let's rephrase that. If he says, pay your taxes without any problem, what are they going to say? What are the, what are the enemies going to jump in? Then you're pro-Roman. And that, would that affect the majority of Jewish commoners? In their mind, it would. The majority of commoners would say, wait a minute, then you're not so pro. By the way, who did they say he was? The son of... David, the Messiah, who's going to do what for us? Free us. And if he says pay taxes, man or days, they're going to turn the tables on him quickly and they're hoping to get the crowds against Jesus. If, now take it from the Herodians' point of view, the Herodians, if they hear Jesus say don't pay taxes, what are those guys going to do? Who are they going to run to? They're going to run to... The Romans, they're going to run to Herod, who they, uh, you know, who they support, and they're going to say, did you hear what Jesus said? He's a what? What would we call him? A rebel? Revolutionary? He's inciting the crowds? And so they're going to have, they're going to have this, this uh, either way, they're going to have Jesus kind of caught in this, in, this, um, in this trap. They're going to use a religious argument against him, with the commoners or those who are going to be promoting the idea of you know, political, they're going to use a political argument against him. So they're, they're discussing the two things that people say never get into conversation about, politics and religion. They've got him, they think, I need one. And so Jesus is going to respond, which is amazing. And um, as we already pointed out, they approach him with flattery. They appear, by the way, what are the Herodians? Religionists or politicians? Does it surprise you that they approach with flattery? Okay. Is that a typical political, you know, uh, contrivance? Okay. So they appeared to commend him for his bold nature, but Jesus knows totally better. Jesus' response, if you compare the Gospels, is very interesting. It says, now watch what, what we put up here. He perceives their wickedness. He knows their hypocrisy. He knows their craftiness. So it's recorded in Scripture that Jesus knows he's not caught up with platitudes. He's not caught off guard by these guys. He knows where they're coming from. He understands what they're doing. And so Jesus' response is um, going to be very pointed. And when he responds, he addresses them as hypocrites. You hypocrites, da-da-da-da-da-da. So he's going 
gonna, he's not gonna be, you know, playing the political game with them. And uh, you all know his response, okay? As he responds, he's gonna be able to say these things. Verse 18, why do you tempt me? Why are you trying to trick me? And then he says, show me the tribute money. They bring him the Roman denarii, and they, the tri- that was used for tribute. They show him the coin, interesting, you know, that they have it there. And uh, Jesus is going to teach, render unto Caesar what is, and render unto what is Okay, now what he's teaching is a, lot, is a lot of things that we already know, but let's rehearse them in our mind. Bottom line is this. He's teaching there are different spheres of authority in this world. And there is no contradiction. There, is, there doesn't need to be any kind of deep, deep harmony if they understand their roles. And so he's basically teaching that the authorities, the different levels of authority can work in harmony. By the way, do we have different levels of authority in our life? Absolutely. We have government we have family authorities. We have church authority. Okay, there's a variety of different authority. You have different authority at your workplace. And so those different levels, and in your workplace, you probably have layers of authority. They're supposed to work in harmony. Do they always do that? No. Okay. But they can and they should. And so Jesus is teaching that, you guys, there isn't a conflict here that can't be worked with. There's a harmonious arrangement that God has put into our lives to help create things in a peaceful, orderly fashion. And what he says is everything here is a precursor to what is going to be revealed by Paul later on when Paul says in Romans 13, these different government officials, they are ministers. They are placed in authority by God. We should expect, uh, respect them as ministers of God. And so he's going to talk about one, one uh, sphere of influence, and that is the human government. And he's going to say human government is there operating under God's approval. And basically these thoughts, human governments are allowed to exist and operate under God's sovereign plan. And so God is the ultimate authority, but government is a legitimate authority over us. We'll go a little bit further, okay? Not only are they ministers, but they have the right to collect taxes. It isn't sinful for us we're not violating God, God's word by paying taxes. And in this case, it's a Gentile government that he's talking about to the Jews. And so they would, they would rebel or be repulsed, excuse me. They'd be repulsed by a Gentile government. He said, well, now wait a minute. It is a legitimate authority over you. It is a pagan authority, but it's legitimate. And I want you to pay taxes to who you're supposed to pay taxes. Caesar is a properly ordained authority to whom you should give an amount of respect and tribute. That's all he's saying. He's not advocating everything the government did or everything the government believed. One of the first things that the Jews didn't like was on the coins they had inscribed things like Caesar is God. Okay, and so they would, de- they would, their emperor, whose faces would be on there, were declared deities. Jesus isn't advocating what they believe. Okay, he isn't saying, he, he, okay, so we pay our taxes. Do we like everywhere our taxes go? No, absolutely not. Okay, but does that give us the right not to pay taxes? No, no. Okay, so there still needs to be that balance that we respect, we do what's right, even if the authority over us isn't doing what's right, that doesn't always give us the, uh, the um, permission to say, okay, I don't need any authority over me. Aren't you glad that, that's, that that doesn't happen? I mean, as a parent, have you ever made bad decisions with your kids? Yes or no? Okay. 
okay, as soon as you make a bad decision, your kids are released by God. They never have to listen to you again. What would that be like in your home? Okay, right? Okay, you're at work. At work. Has your boss ever made a bad decision? (laughs) Okay, let's rephrase that. Have they made many good ones? So we say, have they made bad decisions? Yeah, they have. Okay, that means you never have to follow the procedures. That's not, that's not the way it works. Wives, has your husband, who is supposed to be your head, don't answer out loud if he's sitting next to you, has he ever made a dumb decision? Yes, yes. <laughs> now I'm going to say things because Deb's not here, so I can get away with this. Okay. She would, Deb would say never. <laughs> yeah, right. So it would be if, if all of a sudden, you know, wives were released by Scripture from following and respecting husbands based upon bad decisions, that would really be adverse to our, our marriages. Okay, so he, he's not advocating all the bad that goes along and the baggage that goes. He's just saying, hey, in a decent, orderly world, authority is there. Authority is imperfect because it's human authority, but we still have to have an orderliness. And so he makes that statement. And uh, by the way, that is, you know, that is, this, this is revolutionary to the Jews. This is revolutionary. Because he's just advocated that a pagan Gentile government should be given respect. Okay, because it's a legitimate authority at this point. And so that would be revolutionary to them. So he's going to then flip the coin. He doesn't stop. He just keeps the sentence, which is balancing this out. You know, God is the supreme authority. He makes the comment, render unto God. What is God? He's just asked them whose image is on the coin. And the response was... Caesar's, he doesn't ask the question, but the implication is clear. Whose, co- whose image is in your life? You are made in the image of God, okay? So if that image is there, then you owe that authority as well. And by the way, how many people have that image of God? Every one of us is made in the, you know, we are in the image of God in that sense. So we have, we have an obligation to pay to God. The response to his words are real simple. If you look at what happens here, he says he, the comment, and uh, then verse 22, when they heard these words, they what? They marveled. Anybody have a different rendering? Okay, I'm in verse 22 of 22. They were amazed. Okay, it, it is the idea that they are absolutely stunned by what he says. Look at, look at what the other passages say. They could not trap him. The, the word that I did, Luke says, they didn't hold his words. They couldn't trap him in his words. They marveled. They hold their peace. They marveled. They are caught off guard by his wisdom. It's kind of like, it's kinda, do you remember another character in scripture who was asked questions and everybody afterwards was marveled at his wisdom? Do you remember another guy, Old Testament? You know, settling big disputes. Solomon, remember the wife, the mom, you know, whose kid is it? The babies, and he he kind of gives a shocking response. Well, okay, let's let's do what with the baby? Let's cut it in half. And he knew what would happen. The real mom would say, "Give it to her rather than the baby's life." Right? And everybody's marvelled at the wisdom of something that he said shocking. Well, Jesus just said something shocking, and they marvel. 
because he didn't fall into their trap. He didn't advocate rebellion. He didn't, and at the same time, he's advocating God is supreme. And so it's a marvelous answer that he gives, and it's an amazing answer, which brings us to some good theological, practical applications that apply to us today. Human governments are authorized by God. Okay, number two, there is no conflict between the concepts of God's supremacy and authority of human government. There 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 is no conflict in the concept. Is there conflict in the carrying out of this? Yes. Do we know in history that sometimes government and God have come in conflict? Yeah, when does that happen? When the human government tries to supplant God's authority, right? Okay, so it's potential conflict, and that conflict is this. Basically, it's going to work as long as human government does not seek to supplant God's laws or requirements, okay? And back in the Bible days, was, was the Roman government allowing them to practice their Judaism? Yes. yes, it was. Yes, it was. Did they at times curb some and, and try to, try to, um, to get involved in, in crises moments. They did. But overall, the Roman government let them to have some form, some modicum of independence, and the Roman government at that time was allowing them to worship the way that they were choosing to worship without much interference. Now, there was sometimes the Jews had the problems when some of the temple taxes were used to pay for aqueducts, okay? And they thought that was horrendous, but the Romans thought they should pay for the aqueducts because they were using them, okay? And so, um, you, you can see how that, that there would be conflict to some degree, but the idea... Overall, they were able to manage the system. Human governments deserve our support. Jesus acknowledged that even a legitimate pagan, and by the way, the key is legitimate, pagan government was still to be respected and paid its rightful taxes. And so that's a revolutionary thought to the Jews because the Jews said, we don't want any government over us of any sort unless it's us doing our thing and we're in control. By the way, who did they think should be the government over everybody else? Themselves themselves. So um, you have that going on. It is possible for us to live in this world as both good citizens of the state and servants of God, okay? which is not a, not a natural, normal conflict that can be done. Since all of us bear God's image, we owe him what he requires. Another theology, this is a theology that is for us today as Americans. This passage is not teaching a separation of church and state. It is teaching a harmony between church and state. And there's a world of difference. Okay? Okay? The idea is that they can harmoniously be working, but that, that idea that they, and you can never have religion in anything public. That's not what he is saying. He didn't say that. He's not saying that we shouldn't have the Ten Commandments portrayed. He's not saying that, you know, there, there's, you know, there's a, um, um, a ban against ever praying in a public arena. He didn't, he, that's not what he's advocating. He's advocating harmony between these two different authorities. Um, both were to be properly honored and given their rightful place. Last, Christ, okay, like Christ, here's something that is probably the most practical, is don't be embroiled in unprofitable controversy, okay? Are there moments that we can get into discussions that seem like they will never end? You know the never-ending song? 
There is a song that never ends. And your kids are singing in the car and you want to throw them out. Um, we got different moments. Can controversies never end? Yes, no? Theological ones? Does that ever happen? I mean, are there times where you say, okay, this is what I believe and this is what I believe. We don't necessarily believe the exact same thing in its application. And then what do we do? Keep on arguing until we convince each other? Okay, let me, let me rephrase this. Okay, let me rephrase. Let's say that I think there's a, it's so biblical that you wear ties to church. And I am really convinced of that. You don't have a tie on this morning, okay? And so I am going to convince you that you need to, if you're going to honor God, you need to be wearing a tie. And tie. you'll take mine. <laughs> Could we get into this discussion friendly like yeah. okay can, can we just ride that discussion to the point that come on get over it and just let's move on yeah yeah, yeah. Um, can we get into discussions that are even more biblical how to present the gospel right yeah. can we get into discussions on how to present the gospel okay um, and, and it's valid discussion Okay, what parts of the gospel must we, must we emphasize when we share it? Okay, okay. well, you didn't, you didn't mention another part of the gospel. You mentioned the death, burial, and resurrection, but you didn't mention sin. You didn't mention repentance. So, did you share the real gospel if you only talk about the death, burial, and resurrection? Do you know what I mean? Yes, no? Let me rephrase this. Have you ever shared the gospel and not mentioned all facets of it? Yes. yes. Has, did Jesus ever share the gospel and not mention all facets of it? Yes? Okay. But can you and I, if we get into a method of sharing the gospel, can we lock ourselves into saying, well, this is what's got to be said. These five points, let's say. And if you don't mention the five points that I'm mentioning, you're not sharing the gospel. Yes? Does that ever get into a discussion? Okay, it, it does. And I, I've been there. I've, I've been on the wrong side of challenging people and say, hey, you're not really sharing the gospel because you didn't do it the way I do it. And it's like, well, no, wait a minute. I was thinking about this. Did Jesus share the gospel in a variety of ways? Yeah, he did. He really did. I mean, how much gospel was shared with the Philippian jailer when he comes in and says, good sirs, what must I do to be saved? We don't know everything that was beforehand. But when Jesus was sharing the gospel with Nicodemus, did he talk about hell? No, he didn't. No, what, and he used what terms? Born again, okay? He didn't use the term of you need to be converted. And what I'm getting at is can we in our theology, and, and it's not wrong to use all these different terms, but can we get hung up on certain aspects of theology and get into a discussion that could never end. Yes? Okay. And so it doesn't mean, you know, you're right, I'm wrong, or vice versa. It just means that sometimes we just recognize, hey, wait a minute, different, we're, we're presenting, in that case, we're presenting the gospel in different facets. And by the way, do different people, is the presentation, does the presentation at times of the gospel, does it shift based upon the, that person's perspective? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, if, if he's really arrogant and he's really saying, you know, I'm a good enough person, am I going to emphasize more of the sinfulness? 
Absolutely. As opposed to if Jim is saying, I know I'm a bum and there's no way I can be forgiven. Well, what part of the gospel I'm going to emphasize? The love and forgiveness. Okay, so that happens. And it happens even on, you know, in theological point of view. Um, I went to school with some guys that have a different view of when exactly the rapture takes place. I have a strong opinion. They have a strong opinion. I think they're wrong. Um, I think I can prove it biblically. But I don't need to debate that with these guys. Okay? Just present this is what I believe. Okay, fine. And you believe different, you're still my friend. Yes? Does that make sense? Now, if they change the nature of the gospel, then we got a problem. But if they're, if they're saying, I'll give you one. Some churches have, um, some churches are very strong on the terminology, it's elders. Okay? Uh, we use the terminology deacons. Okay? They're not the same thing. They're absolutely not the same thing in Scripture. Okay? The elders are pastors in scriptures. I can document that. But do I need to make it a big debate every time I see somebody who has an elder board that is actually their deacon board? Okay. I know what I think, but do we need to debate that and make that an issue? Not necessarily. Okay. Um, we can discuss and say, well, here's, here's the point of view. Fine. Okay. And then, then can I still be friends with people? have some minor tweaking differences without being antagonistic. Um, and Jesus is dealing with antagonistic people, so he's going to be a little bit more firm. And I probably buried myself here and going to get all kinds of questions, but um, he goes into a third discussion. Now, the third discussion comes from another group of people. In the, you follow the story. This is really interesting what happens here in verse 23. The same day, verse 23, come to him which group of people? Sadducees, which, and he's, and Matthew wants the readers to understand. They say there is, okay, you see what he's saying? But they ask him, Master, Moses said, if a man die having no children, his brother shall marry his wife and raise up his seed. By the way, stop right there. What books in the Bible do the Sadducees believe in? The first five, who wrote them? Okay, you got, you got where they're coming from, okay? They are using their, their parts of Scripture. Now, he's, they go on, verse 25. There were, with, uh, there were with us seven brothers. The first died, he had married a wife. They deceased, having no issue, he left the wife uh, unto his brother. The second marries her, verse uh, 26. The third, and it goes all the way to the seventh. And last of all, the woman dies. Okay, so obviously she didn't have any children all the way through this, but she took care of and wiped out this entire family. Um, therefore, here's their question. In the resurrection, whose wife shall she be of the seven? For they all had her as a wife in this life. Okay, they think they have got him. Now, now understand, the Sadducees, what they're doing is they're telling this story and it's going to the resurrection. They're not sincerely seeking advice. They're not trying to answer this question. That's not the point. They don't even believe in the resurrection. So we get, you know, we get the beginning of the, of the whole debate. They, the, Matthew wants you to understand right away. These guys are coming not with a serious question. They are coming with such a wild hypothetical that they think they got Jesus in this area. Their question is to show, their question is to, in their mind, to show the absurdity of the resurrection. Now, the reason that they bring it up, as I understand this, is... Let me rephrase that. Does Jesus believe in a resurrection? How do you know? Ah, yeah, yeah. You said several things already. He did it. He, he resuscitated people. He says, I am the... 
He said that in the future there's going to be a resurrection and I will judge people at that time. So they're going to show that we, we, what you've been saying we think is absolutely stupid. We think you're absurd and they're going to point out, you know, they're, they're going to challenge him in this area. Now, they not only believe, this is important, okay, to understand a little bit more of their belief because there's more involved in Jesus' response. They're the religious political uh, rulers of Jerusalem. They are, they're in charge of basically most of the Sanhedrin. That's the, the um, Supreme Court, the Congress of that time. They are um, they are the high priests. They own that portion of it and they control it. And so they are a strong force, okay, in that regard. They're in charge of the temple rituals, okay, but they're working in cooperation with the Roman government because they want to be at peace and keep their own authority. They are not respected by the people. They are not the commoner's preacher, okay. They're the hoi polloi of society. That's the ones that go to them. Their doctrines are what's at question here because Jesus, when he answers, is going to deal with more of their doctrine, okay. They don't believe in uh, the oral traditions. They don't believe in the books following the, the, the Torah. They don't accept the other historical books as being inspired. They're very good Jewish literature. The prophetic books are very insightful, but they don't accept them as inspired from God. They don't accept all the Pharisaical writings that have been going on for generations that the Pharisees would add to the books of Moses and make them equal with the book of Moses that Jesus dealt with in Matthew chapter 5. And so they don't accept the Pharisaical traditions. They hold to the first five books. They do not believe in miraculous supernatural events. They are your theological liberals. They would explain away the feeding of the 5,000. They would explain away that Jesus didn't walk on water. Rather, there were probably stones just below the surface. Yeah, you know, you know, they, 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 wouldn't, they wouldn't accept those types of things. They would probably do that teaching. The feeding of the 5,000, everybody was compelled to become generous and shared. Okay, that's what it meant. They multiplied the food. So that's where their point of view. They deny the existence of spiritual beings. That is, they do not accept the idea of angels. Okay, as ministering to people, as being around and so they, they, you know, they're, these angelic beings are stories. Aesop, spiritual fables, but they're not real. And, uh, that, and that's really interesting because when Jesus responds, he says, by the way, when we're in the resurrection, we will be like the... Yeah, he's going to bring up something that they don't even believe in. So he's going to deal with their theology. Um, they even question at all any kind of resurrection. And in their teachings, it's a, in, in studying, um, there's been a mixed, a mixed review. Do they believe that people's spirits are in soul sleep? Some said the Sadducees did. Some say, are, are, some authors and historians are saying, many of the Sadducees believed in an annihilation. That after death, that's it. There's nothing. They weren't preaching. They weren't teaching an afterlife idea. That absent from the body, you're going to go to heaven, there's going to be peace, there's going to be Abraham's bosom. They didn't have that concept. That's not what they preach. And so with them coming and saying, Jesus, uh, who's, there? who's this woman going to be married to in the resurrection? It is not that they believe this. They are coming from a point of, we're trying to prove the foolishness of the resurrection that you've been promoting. By the way, common teaching and popular view of the resurrection 
resurrection in the Jewish society is not the same as yours. In, base, in Jewish society of that day, here was what they commonly taught the Pharisees would teach in basically in their synagogue schools. They taught that when you're resurrected, your former bodies come back with all of its appetites, passions, relationships, and material condition. What that means is, in the afterlife, you're still going to be dealing with and you're going to be able to be satisfying without any problems your sexual desires, your drinking desires. By the way, what religions, what religions close to this in the Middle East now? Islam. Islam, does it not? Have that idea that in the resurrection, it is basically a party for, well, in the Islam religion, which group gets the party? The men, okay. And so the Jews had some of that same concept, that there's going to be more of a party-hardy attitude in the resurrection. And so the, the Sadducees, they found that abhorrent. They found it that, hey, you know, in, in, if there was a resurrection and if that resurrection involves all kinds of party idea or satisfying, that's just, they found that just absolutely ridiculous. And so they're coming from it to that point of view and they're offended by it. And so when they bring up the idea of whose wife shall she be in the resurrection, they're talking about that popular view that she's going to be married, there's going to be sexual relationships and passionate living in the resurrection that's going to be kind of unhindered, unhampered. And so they're bringing it up to have this ridiculous event in their mind in showing the absurdity of not only the resurrection, but the absurdity of, okay, what about this woman? Does she have to satisfy all seven men for eternity? Okay, that's their point of where they're going with this. They're, you, you, right away, you're looking at me like, ooh, that's kind of really crass the way you said that. That's true. And that's where they're asking this question. They're coming from a point to saying, how crass is the things you're teaching? How vile can they be? How sensual can they be? And so Jesus is going to be a strong proponent of the resurrection. He has been. They understand that. They know. They've had people examine it that you've already mentioned. The question is a means of mocking Jesus' teachings and his beliefs. They found it absurd. They're going to say, okay, how can you promote this type of stuff? The question is challenging Jesus to biblically prove from the Bible. And by the way, their argument is this. There is no mention of the resurrection in the first five books of the Bible. And in a cursory review, are they right? Yeah. In a cursory view over the first five books, there isn't mention of the term resurrection. Okay. Now, was it mentioned by the prophets? Duh. Okay, let me give you one. Them bones, them bones, them. Where's that come from? Ezekiel. Do they accept Ezekiel? No. Um, I know that I shall see my Redeemer and I shall live. And I shall see him face to face. Job. First five books. Psalms. That we will be renewed with him. Okay. So, uh, Daniel 12 the resurrection of the just and a resurrection of the unjust. Blessed are those who are involved in that first resurrection. Is Daniel part of the first five books? No. So they're arguing from what they consider. Jesus' response, and by the way, they're, in this story, do they get the idea of the Leverite type of brothers taking upon another, 
another, uh, a widow, is that found in the first five books? Yes, it is. Okay, that the idea of you marry, you raise up the children, and that's found in, in Deuteronomy and Genesis. There is something I didn't know that's very interesting in all this. There is in Jewish history, there is a story found in the book of Tobit that has a woman who marries five, seven brothers and they all die. It's a folklore book. So they're grabbing something that, that is out of their folklore and they're bringing it and saying, do you really believe that Mother Goose talked? Do you really believe, you know, um, you know uh, they, lived in a wood, they lived in a shoe and they had no, you know, Mother Hubbard's cupboard was bare. Do you really believe that? And that's the perspective they're going with this. If I were to say, don't you believe? And, you know, in those fairy tales, and that's what they considered these other ideas, this resurrection. So it's an interesting concept. And what I didn't know either was this. In Jewish writings that were contemporary to Jesus, there was comments made about a woman not allowed to remarry three times. A widow. Okay? Why is that? She couldn't marry beyond a third husband. Some said two. So several said, do not, we would not marry a widow, uh, you know, beyond a, th a third occasion, a third husband. Go back to what we started saying. What do people think death, would, death or disease came from? Somebody's personal sin. Now, do we know it came from sin? Yes, yes. And we know that, the, you know, the curse. Okay. But what they're saying is, remember the blind man? The blind man that Jesus healed? The question was, whose sin made him blind? Remember we told the story? That there was like families that they said that when a child died, they would even look at the parents' past and try to say, oh, you must have done something in your background, something in your past, in your childhood, something's bad that, that caused your child's death generations later. Well, why would they say uh, they won't marry some, a woman beyond three husbands? Something's wrong with who? With her. She's dangerous. Okay, now we smile at that, but if you come from a theological point of view that says anything bad that happens in your home is because of somebody's sin, who's, what's the common denominator in the husband's dropping? The wife. So if, are, are you, from a theological point of view, would you be ministering and protecting other people by never letting this woman get married again? Absolutely. Now, some of this seems weird to us, but put yourself back in their sandals and look at what they're talking about in this. They're attacking Jesus and saying everything. Oh, this whole story is so absurd and so foolish and is dangerous. And, you know, so you have that going on. Jesus' response is really interesting. You err. He's telling the teachers, you guys don't know your Bible. That's his opening line. You don't know the Bible and you don't know. Watch what the key phrase. You don't even understand the power of God. Now, if you remember what is displayed in Scripture, that the most evident power of God in the Old Testament, the prophets, is the resurrection. It is the height of display. Now, to the Jews, prior to that conversation of resurrection, what events, there's two of them in history, okay, or maybe three, that showed God's great power. One would be the creation. Any other event that showed great power that they, okay, the flood, any others for the Jews personally that they would look back to, and this was the power of God. Not, not Messiah, we're looking historically. Okay, let's go back to their deliverance. 
Okay, the, the, the plagues and especially the, yeah, and they would look at that's a huge power of God, power of God, power of God. And, they, and in book of Acts, look how many times it looks back to this in the epistles and other comments about the power of God and the prophets, the power of God in those events. Well, in the, as the prophets go on and into the New Testament, the concept is the power of God is most vividly displayed in, that physical, in, in a physical act in the resurrection. And so there Jesus is saying you don't understand it. And then he takes, the, he takes a passage from the, from the scriptures they accept. He's going to use their scriptures and he's going to point out here's where the resurrection is taught. Okay? And he's using the Torah, which we're talking about. He's going to jump to Exodus chapter 3. And he's going to put something clearly laid out for him. Exodus 3, I am present tense. I'm alive. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By the way, when he said that, where was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Exodus 3, he's talking to Moses. Okay, where's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob by that when Moses is talking at the burning bush? They're dead and they have gone to physically. Their bodies have done what? The decayed, gone to dust. Okay, they're there. And so he is saying, I am right now, in that comment, I am right now the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which implies there's what? There's, there's something there going on there's some type of relationship happening. So those people, when they died, you know, is God saying, I'm the God of a nothing? I'm a God of dirt? I am a God of these people who are probably right now with me. Okay? That there's a living relationship, an ongoing relationship is the way Jesus is presenting it. The people who are physically dead are obviously still alive. And so he is, he is saying that there is life after death. Sadducees wouldn't. And so if they're alive now, there's going to be that resurrection body implied, that there's going to be that, you know, with the, with the renewed earth. And Jesus is advocating it by saying God is not the God of the dead, but the living. And he interpreted it this way, that passage. He points out other doctrinal deficiencies when he says, by the way, you not only don't understand the power of God and that these people are alive, but look what he says in verse 30. In the resurrection, they marry, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels of God in heaven. What other doctrines has he just attacked them in that they deny? One is the resurrection. Angels, okay? He's pointing out angels. And he's pointing out that those in the resurrection are not going to have this um, struggle with, with physical appetites. That given in marriage and marriage is talking about the idea of not just having relations, uh, the normal activities of life. It's really, it's a phrase that's really dealing with the, se the sexual aspect, the physical appetites of marriage. Um, and so he's talking about that that's not where our aspirations, that's not where our activity in the resurrection is going to be. And he goes on, he says, we shall be as the angels who neither marry nor are given in marriage. The resurrection pe resurrected people, he's pointing out, will not be satisfying passions and sensual desires, but we're going to focus on relationships that are going to change, okay? The idea that what we focus on now, when we get there, it's going to be a change. Now, Jesus is not teaching we become angels after death. That's not what he's implying. He is not teaching that um, we won't recognize family members. He's not saying that. 
But he is saying that with the resurrection, we have a higher purpose in piety than what we do on earth. We don't understand it completely because we just don't. <laughs> okay, we're finite. But things are going to change. There's going to be a difference. And it's going to be a higher, better level of existence for all of us. And so he's going to continue his study. And i got to stop right here. Okay, but he's going to answer them with this question. And he's going to, the, the response to them after he says all this, they are just... That's what it says. They don't know how to answer him. He stumped them. He's absolutely stumped. And so there's more theology. We've got to get into it next week.